We're going to get started. Hopefully you've had a good weekend so far. And I do hope you come back out tonight, uh, rain or shine. We're going to be we're going to be praying for Hungary tonight, so we have, we have a number of things to pray for regarding Hungary and Kale and the ministry there, and so um, we'll be praying for First Baptist Church as well, but Hungary will be our focus tonight. So, so come back out for that, and, and you know, I, I thought we could pray the rain away last week, or last month. It didn't quite happen, um, but we'll, we'll see about tonight. It'll, it'll be a good time of prayer and worship and fellowship together either way. But if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 7. This will be our last week in Acts chapter 7. And and just as a reminder, I want to give you a kind of a quick update. I told you this a couple weeks ago, but just a reminder of where we're going on Sunday mornings here in in the near future. After today, we're going to take a short break from our study of the book of Acts. So we've been in it pretty steady since January. We're going to take a short break. And so for the rest of August, these next two weeks, I'm going to be out of the country with our team in Tanzania. We'll be praying for that team at the end of the service. Uh, So I'll be gone the next two weeks. And so Jeff will be leading uh, next Sunday and we'll be seeing Vinny and Megan off for their one-year internship to Albania. And then the Sunday after that, Craig will be preaching. And then the Sunday after that's our Summer's End celebration. So that's kind of the rest of August. And then beginning in September, I'm going to begin a four-week series title that I've titled Issues Facing the Church. And so um, I think it's, it's timely, and I think, um, you know, maybe, you know, the, the devil won't like it and doesn't like it. So be praying uh, for us at that time. Uh, but we're going to talk about some cultural issues and, and family issues, um, and then the, the different wars, a worldview war, a cultural war a family war, and the next generation's war, which will take us up through Certainty Conference, which is the theme of this year's Certainty Conference is the next generation. And it's a little bit different, but because um, but that is, you know, typically a core doctrinal conference where we pick a doctrine and go through it. And, and this is, doctrine is the glue to everything we do and the mission that God's given us without understanding not only the preservation of Scripture and the doctrines contained therein, then we don't have a real purpose uh, we have to understand what we have and so that we're willing to give our lives to something that's so much bigger than ourselves. And so doctrine is a clue, so the glue, and so we're going to be talking about how we pass on our doctrinal DNA to the next generation. And, but all of us are included in that. We all have a role, um, no matter your age. So that'll be Certainty Conference. And then we'll get back into our study of the book of Acts Um, We'll pick it back up in chapter 8 on October 15th. But today, we do have one final bit of business uh, to finish here in in chapter 7. We've taken the previous two weeks to dissect Stephen's sermon, his answer to the false allegations made against him by the Council of Israel's religious leaders. So I titled those last two messages, the the final straw, parts 1 and 2, because it represented this time, this message that Stephen was given them, it represented Israel's final opportunity to accept Jesus as their Messiah and begin the process of bringing in the millennial kingdom. But today we see Israel's response. You know what it is by now, you know, I've told you most, multiple times, but we're, we're going to see it today through their leaders, through that council, and the response is a resounding no. They're not interested in Christ. So I've titled today's sermon, The Final Response, and what's interesting is that we actually are going to see not only the response of Israel's leaders, we're also going to see the response of Stephen to the situation, and these two final responses are quite different. In fact, they're absolute contrast. Because Stephen didn't let 
the anger and the rage of the council get to him and change him. He is the embodiment of Romans 12, 21. It says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That is exactly what Stephen did. He was and therefore still is an overcomer. Even though our text this morning ends with Stephen's death, I'm quite confident that, that if we could talk to Stephen today, he doesn't regret his actions or his words at all. And I say that because of what we know to be true of Scripture. Uh, we know it from places like 1 Peter 3.9. It says, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. Stephen certainly did not do that. We'll see that today. But contrary rise blessing, knowing that you also there unto, uh, ye are there unto called, that you should inherit a blessing. And listen, Peter, who wrote those words, was a, was a man who, at least in his early years, you know, in, in his early walk with the Lord, didn't, didn't mind getting into a tussle. He was willing to cut off an ear if called upon or, you know, even if not called upon. But as we saw in those first few chapters of the book of Acts, Peter was a changed man. And he lived 1 Peter 3.9 and Stephen learned from the likes of Peter and those other apostles. And we are going to see that very clearly in his response today. But like I did last week, let me, let me make sure we're all on the same page. This is, this is a very important chapter. And so for any of Body that's missed, I want to make sure we're all on the same page and understand the full context of where we're going to pick up the text this morning. And leading up to chapter 7, we were introduced to Stephen in chapter 6. He has a you know, very short, you know, quote-unquote lifespan in, in the context of the Bible, um, and, and we're going to see that his life ends today. But we only see him in two chapters in the entire Bible, Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 7. He's the first named deacon of the church, and, and he was a man that was full of the Holy Ghost, full of faith, full of power. It says he was performing many signs and miracles. But not only that, what we learn about Stephen is that he was taking the message of Christ out and about, and he would take it to the synagogues, one of which was a synagogue of the Libertines. We talked about that in, in chapter 6. And this, this synagogue of, of Jews that were from outside Jerusalem, they, were, they started disputing they had debate. They were disputing with Stephen. And they couldn't beat him. So they got mad at him. And they made false accusations against him and brought him before this same council, the town of the apostles, through chapters 3, 4, 5. And so he was brought to trial. And in his defense, Stephen took the time to meticulously outline certain aspects of Israel's history starting from the beginning, starting with Abraham and bringing them up to their current day. He was very specific what he talked about. He was specific in what he didn't talk about. And he first outlined what they missed and how they had missed God's plan, described through God's pictures and their pattern. And the pictures of the Old Testament all pointed to Christ and it pointed to a kingdom. It pointed to a seed and it pointed to a land that God was going to rule over. And it all pointed to that, and they, they missed it, and that Christ was going to be the king. And the pattern was that they consistently rejected their deliverers at, at their first coming and received them when they came around a second time. And they had missed Christ the first time. They killed him. But they were receiving a second chance here through the apostles and the words of Stephen. The kingdom of heaven was still at hand. And Israel will receive Christ at his second coming. We know that. 
They will see him for who he is at that time. I, I, I read this verse to you a couple weeks ago, but Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out upon the house of David, upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Because they're going to realize in that moment what they did and who they killed. And it's going to bring bitterness and mourning to them. But there's going to come a day that they're going to look upon him and they're going to see him absolutely for who he is. Stephen was just trying to get them to see him then. To try to get them to see him in that moment while they still had a chance. And he was trying to do that, secondly, by, by then showing them how and where they messed up. He showed them what they missed. And now I show them, listen, how you, this is how you missed him. These are the ways in which you messed up. And we looked at that last week in verses 37 through 53. And they messed up by following counterfeit gods, by confining the one true God, and just by always countering God and fighting against him and his word. And Stephen showed them exactly how that came about. He showed them why. And it was because they had a heart problem. So they didn't keep God's words. And it comes down to that for us too. We have God's word. But we, can, we can understand and know what he has for us. The issue is our heart. Are we going to be soft to it or, or, or are we going to rebel against it? And so we're going to talk about today. that today. This is such a key issue. Hebrews 3.12 warns us against the issue of the heart in many other places, but Hebrews 3.12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. It's been Israel's history from the very beginning of the nation. They've had up, they had ups and downs. They had good stretches, but, but, but never could, it, could, could contain it throughout their history. They would always have times that they'd fall back into following counterfeit gods and, and, and just going right back to their sin because of their heart of unbelief until their current day. And Stephen laid this out for them. But instead of Stephen's explanation convicting them righteously and driving them back to the Lord to make things right with him, it drove them instead to anger and defensiveness. And there's a great lesson in there for all of us regarding how we respond when we are confronted with the truth of God's Word. And as we learned a few weeks ago, in that and in many other areas, we need to be like Stephen. And certainly not like this council that rejected Christ. They couldn't see straight because they had forsaken the truth. And that's where we pick up the story. The council putting the final nail in their own coffin as they reject Christ by rejecting Stephen's message to them. So follow along with me. As we finish out this chapter, we're going to just start reading in verse 54. We'll pick it up where we left off last time and see this final response from both Stephen and the council. Acts 7, 54, the Bible says, And when they, speaking of the council, heard these things, speaking of Stephen's message, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord, and cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling, calling upon God, and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're, we're so grateful to be uh, in your house this morning. We're so grateful to be in your presence. We know that with your spirit in, in those of us that are believers, Lord, that you're here with us. And, and so, Lord, I pray that, that you lead us and guide us this morning. I pray um, that you do the work that only you can do, that only your spirit can do in, in our hardness of heart at times and the, the work that only your word can do to change it, to, to work with the spirit, to then change our heart, to soften us and, and, and Lord, to mold us more and more into your image. So Lord, I pray that today is a, a, a day of, 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 um, that's a sweet savor to you in all that we do, in our, in our songs of praise, in our time of prayer tonight, the fellowship that we have. Lord, be glorified in all of it. And I pray that everything that is said this morning is true to your word. And Lord, that, um, that you would use it as only you can. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, there, there's a lot of cool stuff um, in this relatively short passage, or, or at least you know, short compared to the, the chunks that we've taken these past couple of weeks. And we're, and we're going to get into that, that cool stuff. We're going to dive into some of that. But in the, in the midst of it, I, I want you to see the practical. I don't want you to miss the practical. We're going to dive into some doctrine and we're going to compare Stephen and the council. But I want all of us to examine ourselves this morning in the, in the process of studying this passage. And I want you to ask yourself, do I look more like Stephen? Or do I look more like the council? Do I look more like Stephen in these areas that we're going to cover? Or do I look more like the council? Because the contrast is stark. And the results are, pol are polar opposite. And one is to God's glory and exaltation in the eternal, and the other response leads to death. And so you obviously don't want to follow that path. And the first response is going to show us, but from both Stephen and the council, is going to show us a contrast of spirit. I want you to see a contrast of spirit. And I say that because of what we see in verses 54 and 55. Look there with me again. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. You see, the Bible says one more time that Stephen was full of the Holy Ghost. It said that back in Acts chapter 6. It said that that was one of the qualifications for deacons in Acts chapter 6. And he was full of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. And obviously, the council was not. Because they were cut to the heart by his words, which were the Lord's words, because he was full of the Holy Ghost. And in response to the word of the Lord, they became uncontrollably angry. And the fact that they were cut to the heart, but Stephen's words didn't penetrate their heart, shows us that Stephen knew exactly what he was talking about when he called them uncircumcised in the heart in verse 51. We looked at that last Sunday. We also talked about this principle a little bit when we were in Acts chapter 2. And the comparison and the contrast, the difference of being cut to the heart versus being pricked in the heart. You see, there's a difference. And it all, the difference is, it's all dependent upon the condition of our heart. This is the core of what we're talking about today. It's the condition of our heart. Will we soften our heart so that God's word can penetrate it and cut things away from us that need to be cut away? 
Or will we harden our heart and just double down on our fight against God? Which way will you go? And God warns against hardening our heart so many times throughout Scripture. This is one of the primary lessons that we are to learn from the life and, and story of the nation of Israel. Psalm 95.8 says, Harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation of the wilderness, as the children of Israel did when they were in the wilderness and throughout their history. So the question is always for us, are we going to allow the book entry into our life? Or are we just going to keep it on the surface? We're just going to kind of keep it on the surface, where you kind of like God's Word, and you kind of like the Christian life, but you're, truly, you're not going to be truly changed by any of it. You're not going to give your life to it, because your own life means more. It's not going to go that deep. And because according to Hebrews 4.12, God's Word will go as deep as you allow it. Right? It is a sword. It's alive. We saw this last week for the Word of God is quick. It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Listening. Listen to this. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and to the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Listen, that book will go as deep as you allow it. It'll go to the soul and the spirit. It'll go to the marrow. That is the innermost part of our body. In, inside our bones. It will go as deep as you allow it. And it will discern your thoughts and your intentions. And it will reveal all of that to you if you allow it. But you have a choice. You have a free will. And you get to choose what you're going to do with what God has said. And how deep you're going to allow it. Will you allow it to the point of conviction to change? Or will you allow it to the point of, you know, conviction that just turns to anger? Where you just, you get mad. Because you don't want to change. You don't want to confront the truth of God's word. It's the question we have to always be asking ourselves. And this council had a hard heart and were therefore being led of their own spirit and their own feelings, not of the spirit of the Lord. Stephen was, this is the contrast of spirit. Stephen was being led of the spirit of God. The council was being led of their own spirit. And listen, when we allow that to happen in our lives and, and, and we let our spirit have control and we don't walk in God's spirit, that's when we have trouble controlling ourselves, just like this council did. And it's because Proverbs, it's a principle, of Bible, the Bible says it. Proverbs 25, 28, he that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. And that means the enemy can come in unobstructed. There are no walls of protection. See, God's spirit sets up walls to protect us. But when we don't listen to him, when we don't allow God's word, to, the Spirit of God to use God's word to work in our life, and so we don't let it penetrate our heart, then we're just relying on our spirit. And, and the enemy's it's an unprotected spirit. And the, what the enemy does it in those times is he comes in and he blinds us to truth. Again, this is one of the lessons that we're to learn from Israel. 
Paul said it, 2 Corinthians 3.14, but their minds, speaking of Israel, were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. They don't see it. They missed Christ. And I want you to see that the Bible says Israel's minds were blinded. Their minds were blinded. So listen, when you and I fall for the same tr trick, it means we can't think straight. We can't think straight. And we see things from the wrong perspective. And we think we're right, but we're not. And we don't even know it. And for this council in Acts 7, it resulted on the, in them gnashing on Stephen with their teeth. And boy, that is such an interesting description. But again, the Bible's self-defining, so when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can understand the meaning of this phrase. And it means they came at him with great anger, uncontrollable anger, with wrath and wickedness through their words. That's what, that's what gnashing of teeth means. We learn that from verses like Job 16.9. He teareth me in his wrath who hateth me. He gnasheth upon me with his teeth. Mine enemy sharpeneth his eyes upon me. Right? You, you begin to see he's tearing away with his mouth, with his words. Job 37, 12, we, we get an idea who does this. The wicked plotteth against the just and gnasheth upon him with his teeth. And that verse is literally being fulfilled in Acts chapter 7 from enemies of the truth. The wicked plotteth against the just and they lash out through their words. Lamentations 2, 16 says, All thine enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash the teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day we have looked for. We have found it. We have seen it. And that's what gnashing of the teeth is. If you just keep, and there's plenty of other verses you can go to. And it's just, it's a deep anger that results in wicked words. But what's interesting and very sad is that some of the enemies of the, of the Word of God and the work of God in this life who gnashed their teeth against God and against God's people, they're also going to be gnashing their teeth throughout eternity. Because that is one of the descriptions of people in hell. Matthew 8, 12 says, But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 12, 41 and 42, The Son of Man sent forth his angels. They shall gather out of the kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then said the king to the servants, bind him hand and foot. Matthew twenty two thirteen. Then said the king to his servants, bind him hand and foot and take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, and, and here's what, like, this is what just blows me away with this. And it, it's, it's incredibly sad. Because you see what the gnashing of teeth is, the definition of it in this earth, and then you see it also occurring in hell. But the definition of the phrase doesn't change. So that means that even in hell, people will still be angry and talking against God. They'll still be angry and talking against God. And you say, I thought the Bible says that there's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And you're right. The Bible absolutely says that. Philippians 2, 2 verses 10 and 11. So every knee will bow. And everyone will confess. 
and everyone will absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, know the truth. But they still won't like it throughout eternity. I mean, listen, these same people refuse to follow the truth throughout the tribulation. So what makes you think it won't happen in eternity? Because when God starts pouring out his wrath on this world in the tribulation, there's going to come a time where a third of the remaining population is killed. And do you think that gets the attention of the other two-thirds? Here's what the Bible says. Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands. That they, should not worship, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. Even God's wrath being poured out in the time of tribulation doesn't change them. That is the evil. Listen, that is the level of evil that can reside inside of a hard heart. Go read Revelation chapter 16 and see what happens after each of the vials of God's wrath is poured out. It's the same response. And they'll know the truth, but they'll still be gnashing their teeth even in hell. What a sad, sad picture that is. But listen, what is maybe just as sad is the Christian that gets caught up in that mess here in this life. With blinded minds that are willingly ignorant to or outright reject the truth of God's word and speak wickedly against those who believe it and are living it the best they know how. Listen, not perfectly, because none of us can do that. And we're all going to make mistakes along the way. But that doesn't mean we should gnash our teeth against someone that maybe has made a mistake. You know what God did for us in that is show grace. Don't be like the council on this. It's a dangerous road to walk. And the way to keep from it is what we talk about all the time. It is continually renewing our minds in God's word because their minds were blinded and the mind and the Bible are so con- the mind and the heart are so connected in the Bible. They're, they're, they are in, in many ways they are one. And so we have to continually renew our mind in God's word. We need a continual renewal to remain sober-minded, thinking with the mind of Christ, walking in God's spirit instead of our own spirit. And we know this because this is what Stephen thought. Verse 55 said he was full of the Holy Ghost. And and most of you know this. We've talked about this many times. But we, we get that by allowing the word of Christ to dwell in us richly. That is the definition of walking in the Spirit. So when you compare Ephesians 5 and that passage and, and Colossians 3, right? We've looked at that many times, but let me show you again and give you the full context. Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 20. And be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so how do you do that? You know, how do you, how do you, you know, be filled with the Spirit and, and have an attitude of gratefulness and, and worship and those sorts of things? Well, you, you go to the companion passage, Colossians chapter 3, and you apply that. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your heart to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And, and so obviously those, the, you see the comparison there. 
And that shows the spirit leading that we need in our lives. To be led by the Holy Spirit as we are filled with God's word. And we let it dwell in us and renew our mind. It's a daily process. In contrast to just being led by our own spirit that's unprotected from the enemy and ultimately blinded by him. What a contrast we see in these verses. But then the second contrast we see is a contrast in sight. We have a contrast in spirit and who's leading. Are you leading your life or are you letting God lead your life? And when you're letting God lead your life, and you're walking in the Spirit, you see things way differently than those that are walking in their own Spirit. In fact, maybe you even see different things. Because what the council saw and what Stephen saw were two very different things in this situation. And I already told you the council was blinded to the truth, so that means what they saw was false. Look at verse 55. But he, being filled with the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And then verse 57, Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. You see, what's cool about this is that when Stephen was in a position of trouble, what did he do? It says he looked up. When he was full of the Holy Ghost, when he was walking in the Spirit, the result was he looked up. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up. And what a great practical lesson that is for us when we are facing trials and struggles of life. Because if we look around, or even if we look within, we're at risk for seeing the wrong thing. But if we look up, we have a shot to see what we need to see to get through what we're dealing with. Looking up and looking at Christ is the only way to be able to keep going, looking under the author and finisher of our faith. Or as Titus 2.13 said, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. And I believe that is exactly what Stephen was looking for because of what was told to the apostles by the angels at Christ's ascension when they were looking up just like Stephen, right? Christ goes up and they look up and You might remember it, but I'll show you again. Acts chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner, as you have seen him go into heaven. So I think Stephen was looking for Christ's return. and 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 as I'll show you, that was probably exactly what he should have been looking for. But when Stephen looked up, what did he see? He saw the glory of God. He saw the heavens opened. He saw Jesus standing on the right hand of God. And all the council could see was their anger for Stephen. The council couldn't see past themselves. So their evil words, their gnashing of teeth turned to actions. And they ran upon him to kill him. So Stephen saw Jesus, but the council saw Stephen. Stephen saw the glory of God. The council just saw a man that needed to be stopped. Stephen saw the heavens open. And the council saw a man whose life they deemed needed to be closed out. 
You see, there was quite a contrast in sight, but, but even more than all that, Stephen saw the opportunity to receive Christ, and council saw, the council saw the result of rejecting Christ. And I say that because what Stephen sees is one of the more interesting studies in the book of Acts. He sees, he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And, and we know from Scripture that when Christ finished his work on the earth, he went and sat at the right hand of his Father. You can see that in many places. Let me just do a quick stroll through the book of Hebrews. You see it many places. Hebrews 1.3 said, Who, this is speaking of Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 10.12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? Sat down on the right hand of God. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we could go through many other passages to show us this same truth. But what is true in Scripture is, is we see that Jesus is consistently sitting next to his Father, even to this day. But Stephen saw him standing. And if you listen to sermons on this passage, or if you read 99% of the commentaries out there, I did both of them this week, what you're going to hear and what you're going to read, here's, here's, what you're going to, here's what you're going to hear, here's what you're going to read. They're nearly all going to say that Jesus was standing to receive the first martyr of Christ into heaven. And he does that and has done that for every Christian martyr throughout history. Or they will say that Jesus was giving Stephen a standing ovation for his boldness and his uncompromising and unwavering love for him and for truth. And that sounds nice. And it might even give you, you know, warm, fuzzy feeling inside. The problem is, to get to that conclusion, you, you kind of just have to make it up. You have to say, well, okay, so here's, here's what I think. Here's what I think happened. Because you can't find Jesus doing that anywhere else, anywhere in Scripture. You don't see that anywhere to where it says he's receiving the martyrs or he's giving a standing ovation. So you have to say, well, yeah, I mean, I, this must be what it was. Here's what, here's what I think happened. And the truth is it doesn't matter what anybody thinks, including me. It doesn't matter what I think. It only matters what the Bible says. And the Bible does have some things to say about Jesus getting up and standing in the throne room. So we're going to walk through a little, little set of, of verses here, so stay with me. We're going to start in Isaiah 2.12. In Isaiah 2.12, we find the first mention of the phrase, Day of the Lord. Now, as a phrase, we've talked about that. If you've been through MTT, you're aware of that. But it's a phrase that consistently points us to the thousand-year day or the millennium, the kingdom rule of Jesus that was being offered to the Jews by Stephen. And that day, the day of the Lord, begins with the second coming of Christ. So I want you to see that verse. Isaiah 2.12 says, For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. All right, so it's setting the context for the day of the Lord. And then go on, we'll skip down to verse 19. 
And they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord. And for the glory of his majesty, listen to this, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. And you might ask, ariseth from what? It's when he ariseth from his seat next to his father. And you say, oh, okay, he, he stands up. Well, what, well what's he going to do? What's he going to do? What's Isaiah 2 talking about in this context? To shake terribly the earth. Well, we get that answer in Isaiah 3, verse 13. It says, the Lord standeth up to plead and standeth to judge the people. And the word plead, here you need to understand it, is a legal term. It means the Lord is entering their plea. You know, if you're in a court, the judge is going to ask you, what do you plead? So, so this isn't saying Jesus is pleading. He's on his knees begging. No, Jesus is entering a plea. And the plea is guilty. And he's the, he's the judge and the, and the prosecutor. And as a prosecutor, he's entering the plea. The plea is guilty. And as a judge... He's going to take vengeance. And that's what he's pleading. It doesn't mean he's begging them. He's sentencing them. And he's placing a judgment. Psalm 76, verse 8 and 9 says, Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still when God arose to judgment. To save all the meek of the earth. Because he is going to, coming back, to save the, the remaining remnant of Israel. Those that stand by the, the, what, the, the kingdom rules of Matthew chapter 5 through 7. He's going to save the meek of all the earth, Selah. You see, this is a description of the second coming. And another clue to what's going on here in Acts chapter 7 is the use of the title Son of Man. Stephen says, I see the Son of Man standing in, in, in verse 56. And this is the last time that title is used for Christ until the book of Revelation. Paul never uses it, not once. And that's because it's a messianic title for Israel. And for example, you see that messianic kingdom aspect of this title in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him, and there was given him a dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. So that's the, that's the Son of Man. This is also Jesus' favorite title of himself, by the way, in the Gospels. He calls himself the Son of Man more than any other title. And Jesus said the Son of Man was going to sit until he came back. Matthew 26, 64, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds. And so Stephen saw it. He says he saw the heavens opened. Well, that doesn't happen every day. But do you know when it's going to happen next? At the second coming. When he comes to do what? To judge and enter a sentence of guilt for those who rejected him. Revelation 19.11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness, righteousness he doth judge and make war. So here's what Stephen saw. 
When Stephen saw Jesus standing, what he saw was a readiness for the second advent. Saw Jesus ready to, for the process to begin because if they would have accepted him, that would have triggered Daniel's 70th week. Now, for some of you, you might, be, you might not have any clue on what that means. It's okay. Just keep coming. Just keep coming. Keep learning. But that would have triggered a series of events that would have culminated in Jesus coming back, standing on the Mount of Olives and establishing his kingdom. And he was ready. He was standing ready. But they rejected him because they didn't see that at all. The council didn't see it at all. And so they rejected Christ by rejecting Stephen. So those events didn't start. And it's because they couldn't see like Stephen. They were blind. Paul, quoting Isaiah, he said this later in the book of Acts, speaking of Israel. Again, he's quoting Isaiah, Acts 28, 27. For the heart of this people, again, remember this is, all goes back to the heart issue. For the heart of this people is waxed gross. And their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. But they didn't do that. So Israel had a sight problem. But listen, Stephen could see just fine. And this is another area we need to be like Stephen. It just goes back to what I was talking about in our last point because there is a risk for all of us when when we allow even subtly over time for our heart to harden, to harden to the truth of God's word, and we don't even know it, but we're just getting cold, and God's word isn't impacting us like it used to, and we don't feel it the same, and we've just hardened our heart a little bit, guess what? In those, in those moments, we are at risk for spiritual blindness. So don't fall for it. Look up and see with spiritual eyes, not only physical eyes. Your physical eyes will deceive you. But there's one more contrasting response that we need to dissect here. And that is a contrast in success. There's a a contrast in in who is actually successful in this, how how this ends. Because at first glance, it might seem that the council won this round and Stephen lost because they kill him. But listen, it's absolutely not true. In fact, it's the other way around. Israel lost big and Stephen won big. Stephen, the name Stephen, you know what it means? It means crown. It means crown. The martyr's crown that we can receive. Stephen won big in this one. But look at how this chapter ends, verse 57. And they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. Listen, they they couldn't hear what he was saying. And what he was saying was, I see it. I see heaven open. I see Jesus standing. And they stopped their ears. They couldn't stand it. And they ran upon him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's Stephen speaking. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. You see, the council, they were about killing. For them, success was measured in Stephen's death. But for Stephen... 
His death meant life. They thought they were killing him. But it was only just giving him a little trip to see Jesus. And according to Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now in the stoning of Stephen, there were several legal things that this council did. They actually obeyed the law. Leviticus 24.14 says that if you were going to stone a man, he had to be stoned outside the city. So they had the presence of mind to do that. They cast him out of the city. Secondly, Leviticus 24.16 said stoning was the punishment for blasphemy. And that's what Stephen was accused of. So they were right on that count. I mean, they weren't right. He didn't actually blaspheme God, but that is what the court found. Then the third thing was that according to Deuteronomy 19.15, you couldn't find someone guilty unless you had two or three witnesses. So they had their false witnesses in tow. The Bible says the witnesses were there and laid the, the garment at Saul's feet. And so, so they, they kept the law. In the, in the killing of Stephen, in their murderous rage of fury, they kept the law. They kicked him out. They brought their witnesses. They charged him guilty of blasphemy. So they kept the law. And what's interesting about that, and here's the reason why I mention that. I'm mentioning it for a reason. These guys cared about the law. They cared enough that in the midst of their anger, they're like, well, we just can't, we can't do it here. We have to do it outside the city. And we have to find him guilty. And we have to have our witnesses. Like, we have to do this by the law. We have to do it by God's word. So they cared about the law, but listen to me very carefully. They just didn't care about the truth. Because care for the truth goes deeper than actions. It goes to the heart behind the actions. This whole thing is a heart issue. This whole sermon is about the heart. And there are people that know God's word. And even some of the time act according to God's word. And do not love God's word. And do not care for the truth. They understand the, the, the legal aspect of God's word. But care and love for the truth goes deeper, certainly, than knowledge. And it goes deeper than actions. It goes to the heart behind them. So their actions were according to the law, but their heart was far from it. And because of it, they killed a messenger of the Lord. And stoning was a brutal way to die. Not near as bad as crucifixion because it ended much quicker. But they would throw the man in a pit. The requirement was a pit that had to be twice his height. So if it was a six-foot man, they'd throw him in a 12-foot pit. And they'd begin pummeling him with different sized rocks. The the tradition would say that they would start with the large rock to try to kill him quickly. But they would move to whatever was available until the man died. And during the entire painful process, Stephen just sounds and looks more and more like Jesus. I mean, compare the verses that we just read at the end of Acts chapter 7, where he asked Jesus to receive his spirit and to not lay this sin to their charge. Compare those with what Jesus said, Luke 23, 34. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. They did the same thing to Stephen. Cast his garments before Saul. 
And down in verse 46, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. And those, it's interesting, those requests are in opposite order. Je- Stephen said, receive my spirit and lay not the sin to their charge. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know what, not what they do. And then I commend my spirit to thee. They're in opposite order, I think, because Jesus is just more spiritual than anybody. <laughs> he thought of them first before he thought of himself. But they're the same requests. And for Stephen, God does receive his spirit, but he also lays their sin to their charge, at least for now. But for the council, death satisfied them. They wanted death, but like I said, for Stephen, it wasn't actual death. It was life. And look at the peaceful wording at the end of the chapter. He fell asleep. He's being pounded by rocks. And he just fell asleep. And I'm not going to take, we don't have the time now to show you all the verses, but sleep in the Bible for the Christian does refer to death. Not always, but in context, it certainly does. It's very easy to discern. But listen, it's just the physical body that sleeps, awaiting the resurrection, because the Spirit has gone on to be with the Lord. And Stephen knew that. That's why he said, receive my Spirit. Jesus knew that. That's why he said, I I, I commend my Spirit to, to the Father. And Paul knew that when he said in 1 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8, therefore we are always confident, knowing, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. And I mention that because there is a false doctrine out there. Some of you might have heard of it. It's known as soul sleep. And the doctrine of soul sleep states that upon death, our soul goes to a suspended state or asleep, and it awaits, our soul awaits the resurrection. But listen, the Bible is consistent that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You saw it in Stephen, you saw it in Jesus, you saw it with Paul. I just showed you all three of those. You see, the soul and the spirit do not stay with the body at death. Our body goes to the ground, and our body does await the resurrection. But we, who we really are, we go to the Lord. And listen, as hard as this is for our human brains to to wrap around, that is success. But on the flip side, for those who don't accept Christ, the place they go, that is failure. Where Israel ended up is failure. Where the council ended up, that is failure. They had hate in their heart while Stephen still had love. He prayed for them to his death. As they were stoning them, he was praying for them. The Bible even says he kneeled down. Don't miss the specificity of the words of Scripture. He kneeled down. He somehow got himself into a praying position in the midst of being stoned and cried with a loud voice. He shouted it. I think he wanted them to hear it. I suspect he, you know, wanted God to hear it and he wanted them to hear it. And he cried out, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. God, be merciful to them. What a contrast. As they were showing vengeance, he was showing mercy. And listen, there was a young man there that took notice. Look again at verse 58. And cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes and a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And this is the first mention of Saul, who will later become the Apostle Paul, who wrote at least 13, 
of the 27 books of the New Testament, 14 if you consider him the, the author of Hebrews. So first mention of him in the Bible, and this sets us in a completely new direction through the rest of the book of Acts. So we're moving on from Jerusalem. And we're going to see that at the very beginning of Acts chapter 8. They, they scatter. The apostles stay at Jerusalem. Everybody else scatters. Why? It's time to take Acts 1.8. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost. It's time to move past Jerusalem. It's time to move past Israel. They, they gave their answer. Their answer was no. Okay. God's going, about to go to the Gentiles. And he's going to use this man, Saul, to do it. So it's no coincidence, first mention of Saul is right here at the stoning of Stephen, Israel's last chance. Saul was likely in charge or at least one of the leaders of the council at this time. History would tell us that. It's almost a certainty he was part of the synagogue of the Libertines. We talked about that a few weeks ago. He was a major persecutor of the early church by his own admission. But I can't help but believe that this event with Stephen changed him. Saul wasn't saved until Acts chapter 9. But like I said, this event sets in motion what happens through the rest of the book of Acts. And I don't just say that because I think it, like, like I think, you know, that Jesus stood, you know, for Stephen. I think it because Paul admitted he never forgot about it. When recounting his testimony in Acts 22, he said this in regret in verse 20. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. You see, he never forgot about it. And that's why we should be like Stephen. You never know who is watching you in your life. You never know who's paying attention. Even when you think no one is. Maybe he heard Stephen's prayer. I don't know what it was. But you never know who's watching, and maybe it's the next Apostle Paul. And let me say this. Let me tell you who's always watching. Your kids. They're always watching. So how cool would it be if our kids saw Stephen in us? That's a life worth living. That's a response to God and the word of God worth exemplifying. So don't be like the council with an angry spirit, a short-sightedness that misses the spiritual, and a skewed view of, of success. Let's live for the life to come so that the generation coming behind us has something to build off and so that God can be glorified in us today and in them then. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. You know, this was Israel's last chance. And he moved on. What we're going to find when we get back in the book of Acts, like I already said, is, is he moves on from them and he moves to the Gentiles. And this is the interesting thing about chances. You know, we talk about a lot about God being a God of second chance and third chance and fourth chance and 50th chance. And man, praise the Lord, he is. But please know there's always a last chance. And you don't know when that last chance is. And if you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, you're sitting like Israel was in, in that council and you've heard the evidence of Christ and, and have never accepted him, listen, I certainly don't know, but this could be your last chance. I don't know. I'm not saying it is. I'm not even trying to scare you. I'm just trying to be honest with you. Even as a Christian, if you have hardened your heart, and aren't walking with the Lord, and you're just following your own spirit, today might be the last chance you have to get that right. And the next thing you know, you wake up at the judgment seat. 
I don't know. I'm not saying that's happened. I'm just saying that's the possibility. We know that's true of all of us. So don't let this chance, whether it's your first or your last, don't let this chance pass you by. Get right with the Lord. If you've never been saved and you don't know, if you don't know where you would spend eternity, if you died today, you don't know where you'd spend eternity, man, come get that settled today. Todd and I are down here on the front row. Just come talk to us. We would love to open a Bible and show you what it means to be saved, not give you our opinion, show you what it means to be saved and how to do it. And if you need to get right with the Lord, man, do that today. Do that today. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and we're so thankful for your word, so thankful for the, for the, the path that you give us to live righteously and to live holy for your glory. And so, Lord, help us to do that. We are people of flawed nature. Uh, we are, are so apt to, to not act according to your word, and, and yet, Lord, help us in that, and you continue to forgive us. But, Lord, we know there's coming a day that, 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 man, we don't have a chance to get right with you. So let's get right with you today. Help us do that. And, Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they get saved today. We love you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.